Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you not only that you sent us your Son, but that you have also recorded in your word the truths of Christ and the truths of your promises. And as we open up your book now, we pray that we continue to worship by hearing what you have to say, responding in obedience out of love for you. Thank you, God, for making your will known to us. Help us to fulfill your will and your purposes for us until Christ returns or you call us home. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. And I'll be reading the the text within uh, the sermon this morning. In a few days, our nation will choose who will be the president for the next four years. And I hope that as citizens of this country, uh, you will fulfill your responsibility and privilege to vote in this election. And some of you might like to know who I am voting for and why. However, if you've known me, if you know in my ministry, ever since uh, I've come to this church, and especially after the, the first mistake I made uh, when I was a young pastor regarding politics here, I have made it my aim to follow Jesus in promoting only one ruler and, and one kingdom from this pulpit. And that ruler is Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is the kingdom of God. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But only one kingdom will matter in the end of all. As Jesus puts it when he began his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Call me naive, call me ignorant, but my theological conviction and passion is not for whom you have voted, but to whom you are devoted. As a Christian and citizen of this country, I ask you, and I encourage you, brothers and sisters, consider this question. Is your sense of purpose and place and peace in our world bound up with a career politician or with a businessman turned politician or with a carpenter who is the king of kings and lord of lords? I pray you know the answer to that. Really, that's all I have to say about elections, whether they come every four years, every two years. We will continue to proclaim that the king is Christ and our submission is to him and our allegiance is to the kingdom that is coming. And I pray that you understand that, that no matter who is king or queen on our earthly kingdoms and whatever nations exist, your peace, your purpose, your place doesn't change because you have a king that is eternal 
that is coming again. And that will give you peace. That will settle you. Whoever is elected, let us continue to simply pray for their salvation. And let us pray for our submission to them. Well, think what you will about our current president. Let's, let's get to the text. Uh, today's passage reminds us that as Christians, we are all, in a way, business people. We're all business people. We're all businessmen, businesswomen. The passage records for us today what is known as the parable of the minas. Sometimes it's called the parable of the pounds, based upon uh, the King James translation. But as Christians, our purpose on earth is to be about the business of our master. He has put us here on earth for this brief time in, in this particular place so that we would occupy ourselves doing business for him. And I pray that our study of God's word this morning would encourage all those who are servants of Jesus to be faithful about his business until he returns. This passage takes place near Jericho as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the final time. It is his last opportunity to teach his followers before entering Jerusalem for his Passion Week, where he will be betrayed, arrested, tortured, tried, and crucified. And in this last Instruction before entering Jerusalem, we find the parable of the Minas. It's a pretty simple uh, parable. Uh, it has, uh, it's, we could outline it by four parts, and as we'll do that this morning. Four parts to this parable of the Minas that encourage servants of Jesus to be faithful until he returns. So let's take a look at this text. If, you're a fa- if you are a servant of Jesus, May this parable encourage you to faithfulness in your service to our king until he returns. Number one, the first uh, part of this parable is the setting. The setting in verse 11 of chapter 19. Let's read that. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. The beginning of verse 11 connects the par- this parable to the preceding event of Zacchaeus' salvation, the tax collector. The mention of salvation, the son of Abraham, a son of Abraham, and the son of man, all these themes related to the promise of the kingdom has heightened the expectation that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately to the crowds. Add on top of that, that Jesus was nearing Jerusalem, where the Messiah was expected to reign from, and the crowds and for the crowds, including uh, and for the crowds, including Jesus, well, it was a, simply a foregone conclusion that all God's promises regarding the kingdom was about to come to pass. Just look at the crowds. Look at the, the miracles that he was doing. Look at just the healing of Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. Look, even tax collectors were coming to salvation. Surely, the Messiah was about to establish his kingdom on earth, and we probably would have all joined in their expectation. In that day. But in response to their overzealous expectation, Jesus tells a parable to the crowds of worshipers and disciples. They had supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear soon, immediately. 
but they, were, but they supposed wrong. This parable is intended to instruct those who are looking for his kingdom, but in the meantime must wait for his salvation or for his return. And this applied to the people following Jesus back then, and it applies to the people following Jesus today. It applies to you and me. For we, like that people, like the crowds then, are still waiting for his return. We're looking for this kingdom. At least we ought to be looking for the kingdom. And then while we look for the kingdom's coming, while we wait for his return, what do we need to understand? How ought we conduct ourselves while we wait for the return of our king? You know, if you've ever been to any waiting room, you know, when you're waiting for something, a lot of times you just watch what people are doing. Most times we're just doing meaningless, menial things. We're just on our phones. People are playing video games. They're just chatting with friends. They're just kind of, you know, just reading the news. You're just kind of just twiddling your thumbs sometimes. You're just doing crossword puzzles. You're just doing things passing the time. Is that what we're doing right now as Christians? Until Jesus returns, we're simply in a waiting room and just kind of mm, listening to the elevator music in the background. Or ought we to be doing something for his kingdom? And so, as Jesus, this parable instructs us what Jesus wants us to be doing while we wait his return. As Jesus begins his parable now, formally in verse 12 and following, we learn about the entrusting, the entrusting in verses 12 to 14. <clears throat> Let's look at verse 12 and 14 together. We read this. So he said, Jesus said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus often used things that his audience were familiar with as illustrations to teach his truths. And it's no less true in this parable. This parable is about a nobleman who has gone off to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself. And this may sound strange to us today because, well, first of all, we don't, have, uh, we don't really have kings. We have presidents, and we don't elect people. People don't become king in this way. But everyone in Jesus' day, especially the crowds from Jericho, would have understood uh, this, uh, this story, this illustration, as a reference to a former ruler of theirs known as Archelaus. He was the son of Herod the Great. And we learn a lot about this story out of uh, the records of the Jewish historian Josephus. He recorded this, the surrounding events uh, that occurred in the, during the transition of rule following Herod the Great's death. Herod had actually died in Jericho, the very city that Jesus is passing through. And Herod, in his last testimony, his last will, basically, had divided his kingdom between three of his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. But Archelaus was officially named his successor, officially named the one whom he willed or wished would re receive the title of king of Judea. And even though all his soldiers were already ready to crown him as king, that is Archelaus as king, Archelaus could not officially take the title until its authority and until it was authoritatively approved by Caesar in Rome, because Caesar was ultimately the ones who 
who oversaw all these little uh, vassal states, and he was the one who could approve people being called king or not. And so he had to go to Rome in order to receive his title of king, despite the will, the testimony and the will of, uh, of his father, Herod. But before leaving to Rome, the Passover was at hand. It's no, and coincidentally, that's what's the holiday that, uh, the holy day that Jesus is approaching. And as the worshipers were gathered, uh, there were, people started to protest, particularly the, the former rule of Herod and how terrible he was. And, and they were expressed, they protest against Archelaus as well because they felt that he was going to be just the same. They demanded changes. They wanted, uh, they wanted things to, to, <laughs> to change. But when Archelaus sent a cohort of soldiers basically to quell the protests, fighting broke out and some of the soldiers were killed. In response, Archelaus, who was known to be cruel and, and over, overly strong-handed, sent his whole army, infantry, cavalry, and attacked the temple as the people were offering their sacrifices during, uh, for, this, uh, for the Passover. 3,000 people were killed. And their bodies were stacked in the temple. You can imagine the anger of Israelites. By the way, not to mention Passover was canceled at the point. But after that, he went to Rome to be formally declared the king by Caesar. But when there, he was opposed before Caesar by not only some of his own family members, but a delegation of 50 Jews had been sent to represent the Jewish people. And they all opposed and said that he was not worthy to be called king. But in the end, Caesar gave half of Herod's kingdom to Archelaus. But he did not give him the title of king. He gave him the title of ethnarch. He could, he was, there was a promise that he would be made king if he showed himself worthy in the years ahead. But when Archelaus returned to rule Judea, he was never given that title. In fact, he didn't last long. He, he was removed by Caesar after nine years of rule because of his incompetence as ruler. In Jesus' parable then, has this historical background all in mind for the, for the believers in, or the worshipers in, in Judea. They reminded them of Archelaus. And everyone expects and wants Jesus to establish his kingdom and reign over Israel. But by telling this parable, he's revealing to them that his life is going to be a bit more like Archelaus. Not in his, in his character, but in how the people respond to him. In speaking of a nobleman going to a distant country for a kingdom and returning, Jesus is speaking of his own eventual ascension back to heaven, where he is then exalted at the right hand of the Father, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9-11. Awaiting there, he would await his eventual return to rule over his kingdom, where eventually, according to Psalm 2, the God the Father would make all his enemies a footstool for him. But just like Archelaus, Jesus' own citizens will oppose his rule. Later on in John chapter 19, verse 14 to 16, when Pilate presented Jesus before the Jewish people after he had been 
tried, after he'd been tortured. And he asked them, shall I crucify your king? How did they answer? Do you recall? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him, is their cry. Sadly, it was not just the Jews who rejected Jesus, but Gentiles as well. They don't want Jesus to reign over them. They don't want his truths. They don't want his morals. They don't want his authority. And what's true back then is sadly still true today. But there is a group of people who do. And these are his servants. They're actually his slaves, to be precise. They belong to him. To these slaves, the king entrusts one mina each. Ten slaves, ten minas, so one each. Amina was equivalent to three months' salary or three months' wages for a common laborer. And you'll note that each one is given the same amount, one. Each is given the same instruction, to do business with Amina until he comes back. This verb, to do business with, is, only appears here in the New Testament, nowhere else. It's just here as well as in verse 15, but in a slightly more intensive form. The idea is to be engaged, to be occupied in a business or trade that seeks gain, that seeks profit and return. In the similar parable of the talents, Matthew 25, verse 14 following, the talents there are, are usually understood as skills or abilities that the Lord gives. Of course, each one is given a different amount. But notice here, the fact that each slave is given the same amount indicates that this is, not, this is different from the talents. It's not abilities that we're talking about. It's something that every believer has been given and that is the same. And that is the gospel. Each believer has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have been given by God this treasure of the gospel that we might be like faithful slaves who are engaged ourselves in the business of seeking a gain from this gospel. Which would primarily mean the salvation of others. No matter who you are, whether you're a pastor or a plumber, a pharmacist or a farmer, a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, whoever you are, you are all, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been entrusted with the same gospel, the same truth, the same treasure. And it is your duty and my duty to invest it in multiplying the gospel in the souls of others for Jesus' sake. It may mean personally leading others to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It may also mean a, a gospel-driven service in, in the church or in the body or in our community that manifests the love of Christ to the world. It may also mean a gospel-driven teaching or preaching that makes disciples who in turn will make other disciples. It's disciple-making. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 is one of my favorite verses. And in those verses surrounding it, we, we, can re, we read this. The Paul says, we do not preach ourselves by Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond service for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. See, Paul explains what we all do as Christians, that we preach Christ as Lord. That's our, our task, because we're his slaves, we're his bondservants. It's, 
And we are so because it is he who has shined his light into our hearts. He opened up our eyes to see the truth about our sin and our need for a Savior so that we then in turn might shine our light or his light into the hearts of others. We have been given this treasure of the gospel in our earthen vessels, our bodies. And yes, God wills to use clay vessels, clay jars to hold this great treasure. So why? So not that we would boast, so that the praise and glory will go to him, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of salvation will be of God. Everyone will know that oh, it's not because of that person, because that's just an earthen vessel. They're just humans. But it's the treasure of the gospel. Until Christ returns, you and I, brothers and sisters, have been entrusted with this gospel. And it's a great privilege. Let us be faithful to do something with it. As Jesus continues his parable, we learn next of the third part of this parable, the accounting. The accounting of what God has entrusted to us. Look at verse 15 with me, please. When he, that is a nobleman, returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The nobleman has returned. And he's received the kingdom, uh, presumably. And he then calls, and, and, well, as it says, and he calls for his servants to then give an account to him of what they've done with his mina, what they've done with his money. Uh, what have they gained through the business they have done with his, his resources entrusted to them? And although ten servants or slaves are mentioned here, only three are mentioned in these specific verses in re their response. Most likely, these three are representative of how the others responded as well. And we see the first response in verse 16 and 17. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The first slave has made a, a tenfold return. He's made ten minas more with the one mina given to him. And he is commended by the Lord. Well done, good slave. Well done, good servant. The commendation is given because the slave has been faithful in a very little thing. And as a reward, he has given authority not just over money, but now over people. In fact, over cities of people. Ten of them even. When you are faithful with little, with things like money, God will entrust you with more. God will entrust you in the kingdom. With other, with, with other people, with, with cities. And, and, this, and we don't know what that's really going to look like, but that's, that's the promise. The second slave receives a similar, uh, uh, give, has, gives a similar accounting, verse 18 and 19. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Here's a fivefold return. Not as much as the tenfold, but fivefold nevertheless. More than the one mina. Now there's five more minas. And he then is entrusted to rule on behalf of the Lord over five cities. Five could be towns. But there's a third response that we see here, a third response, a third slave coming to respond. And he quite, responds quite differently in verse 20 and 23. And the bulk of this, uh, the, the instruction is, is spent on this. So there's a, this is where the emphasis that Jesus places. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. 
He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. The third slave has done basically nothing with the mina that has been entrusted to him. And he explains that that he was afraid of the master. He thought of the master as being an exacting one, exacting man who would basically, and he was afraid that maybe he would come back and take away all the return. And so thus, leaving the servant with nothing, he's afraid. At least so he says. So in his fear, he simply does nothing. He hides the mina in a handkerchief. And now he hands it back to the master. However, what he thought of the master was not true of the master. Later on, in verse 25, we learn that he actually lets the first slave keep the ten minas. He doesn't take it away from him. He lets him continue to have it. Nevertheless, he judges this slave, this third slave, with the slave's very own words. He's told him, if you knew I was so exacting, and you, if you were really afraid of me, then you should have obeyed me. You should have at least invested in a bank so that money could gain interest. At least give it to somebody else who could invest it and make some money on it. Significantly, the slave is called by the master a worthless slave. And this word is translated worthless in the New American Standard translation, but every other translation translated as a more common translation. This word means wicked or evil. And I've seen I've, that's and that seems more appropriate in contrast to the first uh, to the first slave who is called a good slave. Here is a this third slave is a wicked slave because he did not trust his master and was not faithful to follow the master's instructions. See, we learn from this part of the parable that there will be a time when Jesus returns and he will call all his servants to give an account for what they've done with his gospel. And either you will be a faithful slave whom he calls good and rewards with greater responsibility in the kingdom, or you will be an unfaithful slave whom he calls wicked. If the Lord returns and judges you today, how will you fare? Think about your life that you've lived to this point. What, what return have you made with the gospel? How have you furthered the kingdom? How have you brought, drawed, helped to draw others into the kingdom of God? How have you passed on the treasure of the gospel to others whom in turn can trust it to others? Will you be found faithful or faithless? And Paul would write very similarly of the judgment that will take place for all believers in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 to 14. This is sometimes called the, the judgment seat of Christ. I'd like to read it for us. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. You know, we can't, we're all building on Jesus Christ and what he's done, that he's died on the cross for our sins. He has laid the foundation, and all of us are just building on that. 
We're adding on to it. We're doing our, the works that he saved us to do. That is to further point people to Jesus, to, to draw them to saving faith, to disciple them as, as followers of Christ. And our works one day are all going to be evaluated by the Lord when he returns or when he calls us to be with him. And our work as it's tested by fire, tested, it's judged. Some of it will show, to, will last. Some of it will be pure and to glorify him. And some of it will be corrupted by impure motives or, or in ways that maybe we didn't follow the Lord's instruction when we did it or, or we're just simply being unfaithful. But the works that are done for the Lord, that, uh, that honor him, that, that are show, reveal, reflect faithfulness and dependence upon him will remain in those works we will be rewarded for. But there is a reckoning for those who are unfaithful. And the last part of the parable is where we find our fourth and final part, the reckoning. The reckoning, verse 24, 27. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him, that is the third slave, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. See, there is a consequence for failing to be faithful with what the Lord has entrusted. The wicked slave has his mina basically taken away and then given to the first slave who has already made ten minas. And note that he and presumably the second slave are, are allowed to keep the money gained, the five and the ten, to continue to steward for the master. And then the principle of the master is stated in verse 26. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. See, those who possess the gospel of Jesus Christ will be faithful with it and will be entrusted even more in the kingdom when he returns. But those who think they have the gospel but prove unfaithful reveal that basically they never truly had it. What they have will be taken away and they will have nothing. The faithless slave is, is like a professing Christian who has turned to Jesus simply out of fear. Maybe they profess faith in him simply because they don't want to go to hell. They think that believing is Jesus is simply a ticket to heaven, that they just keep it in their pocket, and when the time comes, they'll just bring it out and say, oh, here's my ticket. But they have not lived their life in service of the one who died for them. They do not love him to the extent that they wish to serve and obey him. Sure, they, they might attend a church. They, they might have even got baptized or lived a quiet life, respectable life. Maybe they, they take communion with, uh, uh, on a monthly basis, but they do not live their life for their master. They do not occupy themselves in the business of their Lord. They do nothing with the gospel that has been treasured, that has been entrusted to them. And when they are called to account, they will have everything taken away from them and they'll be left with nothing, nothing. And certainly we, we know that Paul teaches in, in the, the passage we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, in fact, that a person's work might not stand the test of judgment, 
but and some of the works will be will be uh, will be burned off, will be burned away, but yet they will still be saved. We know that's true. But a person who has no works at all, who does not serve at all the Lord Jesus Christ, but no matter how much they profess faith in Christ, as James would say, if there are no works, that faith is dead, useless, and cannot save. And that is the case for the unfaithful slave, which is why he is called wicked. In fact, in the similar, uh, similar parable, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the third unfaithful slave there is the result of his unfaithfulness is that he is thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what Jesus says. It is the imagery of eternal judgment separated from God. That is the consequence. That is the reckoning for those who think they're slaves of Christ, but their lives reveal a complete unfaithfulness to do nothing with the treasure that God has entrusted to you. And by the way, it is the same, as Jesus tells us, it is the same reckoning that the nobleman's enemies will face. Those who reject his rule are going to be slain And when the Lord Jesus returns to establish his kingdom, those who reject his reign will be judged for all eternity, separated from him forever in hell. Revelation 19, which we read earlier, tells us that when Christ returns, he will come with the armies of heaven, where he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God and the Almighty. And and as he judges on his robe and on his thigh is written that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, Jesus is that king. And to escape that judgment, he has made the way through his death and resurrection. He's made a way for you to be delivered from judgment. And I invite you, if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not yet repented of your sin, of your own of your own way of life, and you have not turned to the Lord for salvation, you have not received Jesus Christ, you've not put your faith in his death and resurrection on your behalf, if you have not confessed him as Lord of your life, if you have not cast yourself upon him to save you, I invite you to do so today. Because until he returns, there is opportunity to be saved. But when he returns, there will be a reckoning, a judgment, and it will be too late to change anything. Will you not believe in Jesus Christ today? Will you not turn to him and receive the greatest gift of of all, not only salvation, but his son, to know your creator, to know his love, his mercy and compassion. There is a consequence for those who do not serve nor submit to the Lord. Well, as we conclude, every Christian, every follower of Christ is a servant, if you will, a slave of Jesus.
We are those who joyfully belong to Him, who exist to do His will. And He has entrusted us as stewards with the gospel, the good news of how one might enter into the kingdom of God. Last week, we learned that Jesus' purpose and priority, and you could say His business, was about seeking and saving the lost. This week, we learned in this parable of the Minas that our business as those who follow Him is to multiply what He entrusts to us. May we take this treasure of the gospel and deposit it in the lives of others so that they too might be saved, that they too might become lovers of Christ and servants of Christ and worshipers of Christ so that they too might serve our King and be part of His kingdom and let us do so faithfully until He returns. I'll leave you with three questions of application for us. Number one, have you been entrusted with the gospel? Have you, do you have the treasure of Christ? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Do you understand the gospel? That you cannot save yourself, that only, only the perfect Son of Man could come and die for your sins. So that when you believe in Him, just as your sins were placed upon Him on the cross, so His righteousness has been entrusted to, granted to you, so that when Lord God looks upon you, He sees His Son. He sees perfect righteousness, though we are unrighteous. And because of Jesus, we have entrance into his kingdom. A truly an act of God's grace and mercy and compassion. Do you have that treasure? And if you have that treasure, then you will know what a great treasure it is and how others need to hear that treasure. Second question then is this. How is your business for the master doing? How is business? There's another way we might say. How are you multiplying, making disciples for Jesus Christ? And when he returns, will he, will he find you faithful? Or faithless? Will you, hear, will you hear him say, well done, good servant? And then thirdly, I'm just gonna, I'm still just, just plugging our, one of our events as a church. If you're looking for a concrete way, a simple way to just, to, and, a small, and really an easy way to kind of be a salt and light to our world, to help in the, in the furtherance of the gospel, we have a, a community outreach opportunity in, in donating blood. And if you can sign up, there's a link down here. It's Thursday, uh, Tuesday, November 24th in the afternoon. And uh, we still have a few more slots available. Please sign up if, you, if the Lord would lead you in that way. And pray, pray for it, because through it, God may allow you to share the gospel with someone and be a testimony of Christ. We have opportunity to save lives physically through our blood, even as we are given this great calling to save lives spiritually through the passing on of this gospel that was given to us, that was purchased at the cost of the perfect Lamb of God shedding his blood for you and me. Let's go pass on this great treasure to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you thank you Lord for Jesus Christ help us to be faithful in Jesus name amen let's respond with a with a final song for a comfort closing benediction
I've almost forgotten, started to <laughs> start leading prayer. So anyways, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> all right, now we do final prayer. <laughs> One, two, three. Let's go to Lord in prayers. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you because of Jesus Christ. And thank you for this wonderful treasure of the gospel that you've entrusted to each of our lives. Help us to be faithful with it, that we might do business with it, might occupy ourselves in it, so that others would hear about your son who came to live a perfect life, a sinless life, to die an unjust death on the cross for our sins so that whoever believes in him can have their sins forgiven and receive eternal life and a place in the kingdom where Christ reigns. Father, we pray that you help us be faithful to proclaim this gospel until he returns. Help us not just to act like we're in a waiting room, but help us to be like we're in the operating room, actively doing what we can to save lives, to save souls for Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful until you return. Father, help our works to bear the fruit of drawing others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you would be glorified as people are amazed by the treasure and not by the vessels. Thank you, God. We pray that you would bring the return of our King and our Savior soon. Until then, God, Lord, we will to be faithful. And we long to hear those words. Well done, good slave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go forth and let's be good servants. Let's be good business people on behalf of Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.